listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and on today's episode, we have a drummer. Well, there's a surprise. We have tons of drummers on the show. We've got drummers coming out of our ears around here. Uh, he's not just a drummer, though. He's a drummer, a fantastic musician. He can produce. He can write. He does a lot of things. I think perhaps most importantly, him and I have been friends for over 30 years. I think I've worked more with this gentleman than I have with any single musician out there. His name is Dan D'Elia, and it is my pleasure to finally say, hey, Dan, welcome to the Rick Z Show. Great to be here, Rick. Great to be here. Thanks for doing it. I know you're feeling a little under the weather today, and I doubly appreciate you being here. If you think you're not feeling well now, wait until the interview's underway. I can't wait to uh, listen to it while I'm convalescing. <laughs> Let's talk about your connection to the Hudson Valley, because you do live in Ringwood, New Jersey. You always have, as long as I've known you. But you have strong connections to this area, both musically and personally. How come? Well, I went to Marist, so I lived in Poughkeepsie for four years. But even before that, my roots uh, run back to the late 50s, early 60s, when my dad used to drive up from Hackensack. He would go up to Rhinebeck. He'd go up to all these places uh, because the drinking age was 18 or 19 when it was 21 here in Jersey. So he'd spend a lot of time up there. And at the Dutchess County Fair, he met Ricky Nelson's cousin, Willie, not the Willie Nelson. And he ended up getting Ricky Nelson to record one of his songs on his album, The Very Thought of You, which came out on DECA in 1964. Wow. I didn't know this when I began coming up here. I knew he'd gotten the song on there and his name was, was somehow misprinted on the wrong song, created an issue between him and the other guy, not Ricky. But that was the beginning of my affiliation with uh, the Hudson Valley. It's so different than New Jersey. Well, we both met at Marist College back in the late 80s, uh, quite some time ago. Let's talk about our first meeting. What, what are your memories of it? Our memories kind of differ a little bit about this first meeting. Yeah, I remember being down in the river room with uh, John Coghill and Carl Allwire. That was your band and, at the time. Yeah, we had put something together. I had a band at home. But this was, I guess, the band I was going to be in in college. We were just this power trio. We played a lot of Rush and uh, Zebra and Led Zeppelin and we, whatever we get away with with three people. And all of a sudden, you walk in the room and you start giving me your opinion on what I'm playing. And I kind of said, well, I, you know, what you think, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and and well, that's that's how that's how this all got be, got begun was us. Uh, we were drawing lines in the sand, you know, even then. I think we were circling each other, trying to sniff each other out for who who is this person uh, that the other guys are working with? Because John and Carl worked with me in the studio at the time, but worked with you live. And both of those guys knew us pretty well. We're familiar with working with us. We're trying to get us together, see if we could all kind of be a band. And I was trying to show you how a drum fill went on drum machine on the demo we had just finished making. And you didn't want to be told, I don't think, you know, how to how to sound like a drum machine. You, you could do that fine just on your own. Yeah, well, I, I think that the essential issue is that John and Carl didn't tell me you were coming into the fold. And ah. that wouldn't be the last time we had a miscommunication with the band. It was the, the first of about 1700. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we actually did get up to speed very quickly. And I, I know that for a while, 
we we the four of us were not a band right away you were still doing your own thing you were rick z you were the singer songwriter you know james taylor billy joelish guy and we're the hard rockers john carl and i we would do um all of those heavy sounding songs and we'd win battles of the bands and and that kind of a thing so there didn't seem to be a bridge at first yeah, you guys were always winning the battles of the bands. And I would go see everyone and think, wow, these guys are great. I wish that I could have a band like this. Never dreaming that I would have actually been part of that band eventually. You guys were called Gunsmoke at first. And then you changed your name to Rough Diamonds. And then eventually you settled on Bad News. And when we eventually got together, it ended up being Rick Z and Bad News. But I didn't really like that. I, I wanted something else. I tried Rick Z and the Neon Fleas for, I think, one gig. That didn't work out too well, although it's on a flyer that I have somewhere still. But it ended up just being the Rick Z band. And I don't want to belabor the Rick Z band discussion too much because I hope in the future to do a whole show on the Rick Z band with all of us. I think that would be great. So we'll bypass that. But back to when we first met. You were actually dating a friend of mine at the time, luckily, because we got to know each other under, you know, different circumstances as well. I remember getting together at her apartment. You were there. I brought my guitar. I had just written a song called New Machine. You liked it. We got into a good conversation about music and we realized how much we had in common and how much fun it would be to work together. And here it is 30 plus years later and we're still doing just that. Although it's unreleased, I played bass on the studio version of New Machine. You know, yeah. One one more note about the the whole Rough Diamonds, Gunsmoke, and and Neon Fleas thing. We were changing names so often. There was one gig I went to at the River Room. They had changed the name and not told me. So they kept saying, you know, who's going on next? The Gunsmoke. Well, who's Gunsmoke? That's not us. And I went up to Carl, and Carl's like, Yeah, yeah, Gunsmoke is us. I'm like. <laughs> oh, that's who we are this week. That's great. Good job, guys. Good job. You know, Dan, uh, knowing you, even from the beginning, kind of raised my game. Not that we were competitive with each other, per se, but we were always trying to challenge each other in subtle ways. I remember you telling me right around that time that we met, you had come up with a title for a song called Mommy, Why Do I Look Like the Milkman? You should write a song with that title. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll have it by tomorrow. And the next day I had it, I said, check this out. So you were always challenging my abilities as a, as a writer to one degree or another. I think you, you still kind of have that role to some degree. You know, you and I tried our hand at writing songs together. I think we have maybe three songs under our belt. One I remember was No More Mr. Nice Guy. One was... Everybody gets to wear sombreros. Yeah, yeah. Everybody gets to wear sombreros. They get to do that. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. Yeah. Where's the know, other one? There was one more. The third one was City Bank in My Mind. City Bank in My Mind. Right. Yes. That's right. Yeah. The last uh, verse had the person waking up and going into convulsions. I don't remember. I don't remember that. We'll get back to work that we've done together. But let's go back to the beginning of your musical career. Really, before I even knew you, your first big serious band was a band called Cruise Control. Tell me a little bit about that and what your role was in that band. Well, it sort of ebbed and flowed. I mean, my brother, Matt, 
played bass in the band. And the cliche is when you get serious, you kick your brother out of the band. But I wouldn't kick my brother out of this band because he was good. He was a good bass player. Also pretty decent songwriter too. And the first song that we came up with was a song called Sapphire. I didn't really have anything to do with the writing of that one. It was uh, Matt and uh, his school friend, Dave Haywood, who uh, plays music full time now, as does Carl Allwire. That's sort of a thing that I've noticed is that every major band I've been in, at least one person or more now plays music full time as their as their day gig. Hmm. But that was the band I was in in 1987. Yeah. And you guys were good. I remember a song called Lost, and I believe you wrote or co-wrote it what can you tell me about lost lost was i was playing guitar one day and i just decided to try playing a like a d sus chord and just move it up the neck and it had this really nice sound to it somehow i got it to where i wanted it and it has almost like a when you hear it it could probably remind you something that paul simon might do except i don't have that kind of ability on the guitar and like other stuff i was writing at the time we were still in the late 80s early 90s so the power ballad was big well you know what i'd like to do right now i'd like to play that song by cruise control lost can we do that absolutely love to hit it
whatever happened to cruise control? Are they still together? I mean, <laughs> you, you haven't, you know, done a gig or a studio session in 30 years with them, but did you officially break up? I don't know if it was an official breakup so much as, you know, nobody called anybody anymore. You guys were a really good band. I remember one time the Rick Z band and Cruise Control played on the same bill, and it was a very lackluster performance on my behalf, as far as I remember. But I remember Cruise Control just came out of the gate swinging and mopped the floor with us that night. Well, that was weird because, you know, playing in both bands, I, I didn't have a particular preference or an axe to grind. But yeah, there was a little competition there, probably. I mean, why wouldn't there be? Why, why wouldn't you want to decimate the other guy? Okay, so you decimated your yourself that night. Let's talk about other decimations that you've perpetrated. (laughs) (laughs) Like a song called Watch Me Play Tennis. I was very intrigued by this. Uh, It's a silly song. It's predicated on this drum break that just loops over and over again. And I believe you just kind of speak over it. We have a little excerpt from it I'd like to play. Uh, At the time I was working a, a rotating shift. So I was never really completely awake. And when you're not completely awake and you're tired all the time, your brain does very strange things. And at one point I was on the overnight and unfortunately I couldn't uh, get a really good three or four hour clip of sleep. I'd have to wake up every 45 minutes or so. And that just puts your brain in some other kind of weird alternate universe. And what I was doing was I had these little bits of paper and I would wake up and I'd write the first nonsensical thing that my brain would output. And that became the genesis for this song and why I chose to put a drum fill on a little piece of tape and let it wind around on the tape loop. I can't tell you why I did this, but when I was done with it, it actually was Valentine's Day. And my girlfriend at the time was wanting to meet me at this restaurant. I kept calling her saying, no, 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 no. I need another 10 minutes. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. And then you're going to love it. You're going to love this thing. It's so cool. It's so cool. All right, everybody, this is Dan's tired brain. This is what happens. Check it out. The other day, I stepped in something couldn't identify. Then the clock struck two, and I gestured toward the wall of obsequity. I marveled at the hieroglyphs and made the appropriate Xeroxes of such, filling out in triplicate in certain states. Needless to say, my rights varied. Lifelong ambitions include marrying my closet, moving to Delaware, and drooling across the 914 area code. My house is defensively furnished with a red velvet stove, Magritte paintings, track lighting, and a salad bar. The other day a radish fell from my ear, looked for bell bottoms to make a big comeback. Just about the time that everyone begins yelping uncontrollably and moves thusly to Detroit. Watch me play tennis. 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 Watch me play tennis.
Well, how that girlfriend of yours didn't fall deeply in love with you after that is a mystery. Oh, man. Believe me when I tell you that it just didn't land. Um, <laughs> it didn't land. Um, well, and let, it, it was it was no, it was unfortunate because I, I was very excited when you come up with something you like as a as a producer or a songwriter or a performer, you, you have that kind of adrenaline like wow the joy of creation I'm, I'm i'm here i'm doing something and you play it for somebody and they just go ah that's nice right and that's the last thing you want is is like indifference like you, you hate it you love it but the indifference that's hard to take well just so our listener doesn't think it's the only side to you you also have another side where you work really hard on material that you've written that's actually quite serious what i'm thinking about is a project of yours a song of yours called Castles in the Sand. Yeah, well, that one was the way I explain it to people is ever um, had a relationship and had it not work out. That's what this was. Hmm. Uh, at the, and at this point, I was playing more guitar than I ever had done before. I was probably playing more guitar than drums at this point. I really want to write a song because of, well, you know, you're a songwriter and I see that happening. I wanted to do something like that. So I sat down at the guitar and I just put together these chords that I thought were going to be three separate songs, but I put them all together and then the lyrics and the melody came. I've never had an experience like it before or since. Everything just kind of gelled. Very interesting. I always liked the song. I was going to sing on it originally, but it wasn't really meant for my voice. I couldn't quite bring to it what you were looking for. I noticed you also mentioned your ex's name in the song, Michelle. You name her right in the song. I thought that was particularly bold. Why did you decide to put her name in it? Well, at that time, I felt like I was directly talking to her, but also the name Michelle has a sort of lyrical, melodic quality to it. I mean, ask Paul McCartney. Let's take a listen to it, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the production. I have a couple of questions, but let's hear it first. This is Castles in the Sand, Dan D'Elia's original tune. Take it away. If I could make the pain go away with the wave of my hand, I wouldn't spend my life waiting for castles in the sand. I have to face what's going on in the ruins of romance And we could be together again if you just give me the chance But times were going rough and you and I both had enough I went my way and you went alone hours on the telephone haunted by you running from you everywhere I had a dream about yesterday and all the foolish things we used to say you and I of gray Oh Michelle please let me stay And if I could take away your fear with my music and my words 
You know, for a ballad, Dan, it's got such bombastic, big-sounding drums. Was that a conscious choice? Yeah, I felt like I wanted to to make a bold statement. And that was, we were still in the power ballad 80s there, so you needed that to build on. I did include things like violin and uh, an acoustic guitar solo on top of it. Um, that might have been a little out of, out of sorts. Uh, we also put a strange, uh, creepy effect on the violin because we wanted some of that uh, eerie sort of uh, sound because the end of a relationship kind of is a death, a death of a dream, a death of a uh, collective viewpoint on where things are going. You were with me on the original tracking session, which I did with John Platania of Van Morrison fame and uh, uh, also guest on this show. I had my brother on bass and I remember working on it for about eight hours and then we got about half hour away from the studio and I listened to it for 30 seconds and I just said nope I hate it this is not what I wanted so I didn't do anything with it for about three years because I'm not a solo artist and I, I didn't want to create a solo career so the reason why I recorded the song is I thought it was worthy of recording but years later I got it out of mothballs and I brought it to uh, another studio 
unfortunately the studio erased the first 90 seconds of the track that became hmm. an issue yeah um it was an accident but you know in, in the days of tape when you record over something you really record over something so i had to set about finding a way to reconstruct my song i had only intended on doing a couple of things to it apart from that i found a way to make it work um i had made a couple of changes to the guitar parts and i was ready to put a vocal on it and then i got the call that my song had been pretty much destroyed that was an interesting day <laughs> but i went back in the studio played guitar on it and uh started building it back up brought john platania back in and that's what you hear yeah john's on it uh rachel hammond on violin she plays for the hudson valley philharmonic even still to this day a very good production probably the first thing i ever heard that you produced on your own yeah it was a lot of fun that was my grand artistic statement even after i did watch me play tennis well let's stop here for a second and talk about the drums you're a drummer there's a lot of aspects to the drums I'm curious to get your opinion on. One is equipment, one is your role as a drummer, and one is about this issue that you have about drummer credibility. What, what do you mean by drummer credibility? Well, I feel like to at least popular culture, drummers are put in this separate category that guitar players aren't, or singers aren't, keyboard players aren't. And yeah, there does seem to be this gap in that, well, you're a drummer. That's what you do. And that's the only thing you're really allowed to do. A lot of drummers I know do play um, at least piano or guitar or write songs and sing. It's more common than not. So what's your role as a drummer? You play in a lot of bands. Drummers are typically the keeper of the time. They've mm -hmm. got a lot more equipment than your average guitar player that they got to haul around. How do you see your role as a drummer in any given band? I'm keeping people together. I'm keeping people together. I'm also firing them up. I'm the engine. I'm the quarterback. You know, that's what you have to do is keep people together. I've seen you play lots of different kits, lots of different snares. I know you've got a lot of equipment. My personal favorite one is your wooden slingerland. Do you have a favorite kit or a favorite snare? It is that deep 8x14 slingerland, which you hear on uh, Castles in the Sand. It just has that thing about it sure they didn't does. make a lot of them you know they didn't make a lot of them that was when the american companies were kind of settling back and the japanese were coming in and uh, rightfully kicking them down the street because of their, their they were made better but one of the things that i found while i have a bunch of drum sets really you make the sound i mean the drummer makes the sound you could sit there and tune a drum set all day and the same drummer will sound like himself are you a drum geek? Are you a gearhead? I am, according to Brian Doherty, I am an equipment dork. Okay. <laughs> I am an equipment dork. I really like that. I love knowing what people used on certain songs, um, certain symbols, certain snares, certain this, certain that. I just, I'm a tone chaser. I need to know how this stuff works. It's trivia to some people, but for me, I want that sound too. And how can I get it? There's no rules, but a lot of times it's easier if you know what was used. If you knew, if you knew that a twin reverb was used, a Fender Champ was used. If you knew that a um, PV backstage was used, you know, that's going to help you get the sound you're looking for. How many snares do you have? Somewhere north of 50. What? Um, yeah. I just added another uh, 
another Ludwig 402 the other day. You're a maniac. Yeah, there's drums all over my house. My house really looks like Guitar Center blew up. Speaking of drummers, I find this very fascinating. You struck up a friendship with a fellow drummer, used to live not too far from where you are. But this guy wasn't just any other drummer. This guy was a jazz legend. Anyone that knows jazz knows his name, Joe Morello. I think that's just fantastic. That blows my mind that you even knew him in the world of jazz. This guy is probably number one or number two on anybody's list. How did you meet him and what did you learn from hanging out with a guy like that? It's as simple as I was looking in Modern Drummer magazine and I saw an ad said Joe Morello now accepting a limited number of students. And I I thought, oh my, really? Is that possible? So I called the number and it was his manager. I guess he was screening people and he had an opening. So I went down to uh, North Jersey School of Percussion where he taught and I started to take lessons from him. The thing to know about Joe is that he's as good a human being as he was a musician. He was uh, hilarious. Uh, he would tell incredible stories. He, he, after take five, he got very uncomfortable with the the adulation. Um, not that he didn't think he was a good drummer. Of course, he he, he thought he was he was adequate. But you know, he, every now and then he would he would take the sticks and and work out on the drums and say, "Hey, I'm just letting you know where you go with it." And I'm like, "Yeah, Joe, I'm not getting where you are." <laughs> <laughs> you're, when you say take five, you're of course referring to Dave Brubeck's classic Take Five album. Well, we could talk about any one of these topics all day, but we don't have that kind of time. So we'll have to move on. I want to address something that we kind of touched on just a little bit earlier in the interview. And that is how you get from a demo state to a finished product in the studio, something that we've done many times together. One thing that springs to mind is a song that I wrote called Ain't That the Truth. You wrote my favorite line in the song. The line was, your daddy's got a brand new pair of shoes. And I thought, man, I just couldn't think of a line that, that captured what I was looking for, but you got it. So you got 50% of the copyright. I was joking. Um, you know, that's, <laughs> well, that's the kind of thing. I, what I tell people tell is, me. yeah, well, what I found is if you're worried about the creative process, maybe just wing it. Don't be so serious about it. Put in that silly line. See if it works. I'd like to play a little edit that you made. We did a little demo. We were, I guess, trying to give it to the piano player to learn his part or something like that. Finish the story. What happened was we hired this piano player to play on the track. Really great guy named Jim Federkevich. The problem was we didn't have we didn't have a good copy of, of the song to give out to anybody. I think you had done a demo with just you and guitar, but you'd record it over like a Steely Dan song. And I could still hear like Hey 19 in the background. I'm like, uh-huh. we can't use this. And don't forget, this is this is the early 90s. There was no internet. We couldn't send MP3s. I came up with this ridiculous idea. I was like, Rick, why don't you call me? I'll put a mic on the phone. You sing it onto one track of my eight-track recorder, and I'll put guitars and bass on it, and then we'll 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 make a demo and give that to Jim. Now I didn't think this was gonna work because well, first of all, you're singing a cappella. No, you're not singing to any any music. You're just sitting there slapping your, your kneecaps to keep time. I remember that. And um, then I went back and tuned up, and, and I think I did one pass of the bass, which is why it's kind of clunky. And, uh, you know, I'm not a guitar player, but I, I did this. So I did try to make the, the solo not terrible. 
I got, I think I'm one notch above terrible and that that's okay because it was just a demo and never meant to be heard by anybody anyway. But then you'll hear how, when we went in the studio, what exactly we changed about it. The feel got better. It got tighter. And of course the, the right person, John Coghill is playing guitar, the right person, Carl Allwire is playing bass and I'm playing drums and you're singing. So what you've constructed here is the original demo that we made together over the phone, the one you were just referring to, and it's spliced together with the finished product, right? Right. Keep in mind, Rick was never hearing my guitar playing or bass playing. He was singing to absolutely nothing. And I put the instruments on after the fact, although it's going to seem like one performance. Oh, I can't wait to hear it. Let's check it out. The song is called Ain't That the Truth. Well, you might. 
Well, that was bizarre. Now, I got another topic here that's really strange. When people ask how long it takes me to make an album, I usually tell them anywhere between 45 minutes and 10 years. And I know we've done both. Let's talk about the one that took us 45 minutes. It started as a, I don't know, a Christmas present, I think, from you. Yes. At the time, you and I were in Tim Wilkie's band, and we were doing a demo of a song. And it took us a while to get the drum sound, I remember. And I remember looking at my drum set out on the floor with all the mics sticking into it. And I just like, I want to get something more out of this. What, what can we do? At the time, we had just released our album. So we didn't really have any songs to, that we could play. I mean, I, I, nothing was complete. So I went up to you and I said, Merry Christmas, Rick. I have no idea what to get you. I'm not getting you Old Spice or Socks. Have some studio time. And I'll be honest with you. About three minutes into it, I thought we made a huge mistake. <laughs> Looking back on it now, we were such a tight, well-rehearsed band. We'd play songs two or three times, and when we were done with that, we would do this proto Bill Murray, nothing but Star Wars, SNL lounge singer thing. We would play in a Doors style. We'd play in a metal style, and we'd just take up the time, run out the clock. That's what you're going to hear. But a lot of the interplay between the drums and the guitar, uh, I didn't know what John was going to play. He didn't know what I was going to play. This is a prime example of people knowing how to follow each other. Yeah, we were just, we were winging it. 
but we did this kind of thing live all the time. So we were well in practice. What I find interesting is Carl wasn't there. So we have no bass. It's just vocals, drums, and electric guitar. At one point, I think I switched to drums and you take over the vocals. But this excerpt we're about to play from Summer at Grandma's by Malt Liquor Babies, that's the official album name. Why the Malt Liquor Babies? I don't remember why we called ourselves that, but it, it, (laughs) it stuck for whatever reason. This really exemplifies how we could shift gears and go from one thing to the other without even communicating with each other verbally. Let's play this little piece from some of our grandmas. Give the listener an idea of what we're talking about. Check it out. It's a blue blossom, a crazy blue blossom. You can hear it in outer space or in your living room, yeah. Blue Vasa, oh, that old crazy magic Vasa. You can hear it on Mars or in your neighbor's kitchen, too. Breadbox delight, lemons in the basket. Leave me on your back porch and I'll come out and feed your rabbit, yeah, yeah. Don't you know, don't you know, if you don't know a lot, I'm going to tell you. Blue Bossa, it's the bluest of all the Blue Bossa. Thank you. 
okay, well, that was a great marketing strategy, something <laughs> off on guard that nobody will ever hear, but we were amused. Yeah. When we played it back, I was surprised that it was even that interesting. Well, and then you edited together video and that gave it a whole new dimension. I even started to like it more once I started watching the video to it. That's a whole different ball game. It's really tough to sell material, by the way. It's something that I have written in my notes here to discuss with you because it's hard enough to sell a good commercial album that you think people are going to listen to and like, let alone something like Summer at Grandma's by the Maltlicker Babies. Yes. The last project that we produced together was called High on Cake, and it was you know, a labor of love, I suppose, but not very commercial. I still think it has a place somewhere. When we first started playing music together, Dan, we would send demos to record companies. We would have a new album out and then we would drive all over God's green earth, just trying to find places to play and people who will listen to what we're all about. But it's not really that way anymore. You have to establish an online presence and you have to appeal to a much larger market over a shorter period of time it's a whole different thing nowadays. The music business has changed entirely right under our noses. We had done a good album and now the weather and we just never got that break or that management or, you know, every band has an arc. And what I mean by arc is you start out, you get together, you write your songs, you start playing live, you get tight as a band. And then by the time you wake up one day and said, I, I can't stand the other three people, hopefully something happens within that time. And uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen with us. But, you know, look, here we are still plugging away. It's what it's what we do. It's and what we, play we do. music. Yeah, absolutely. And I also feel that if you don't succeed hitting some target, alter the target or alter your approach or just move on to another project. You got to just keep going. You got to keep marching ahead. Leads me to our next topic, which is Duncan. And it kind of pertains here because we more or less reinvented ourselves into trying to sell something else, do something a little bit different with similar material. There's a song on the High on Cake album called Donkey, for example. It's all things donkey, you know, donkey this, donkey that, everything boils down to donkey. It's just a silly song. But you had the idea to change the word to Duncan and try to create a commercial for Dunkin' Donuts, to try to create like a jingle for Dunkin' Donuts. And of course, we went in the studio and did that. I'd like to play a little part of Donkey right now so you can kind of hear what we're getting at. Then we'll play the Dunkin' Jingle. Check this out. This is Donkey from High on Cake. Donkey, make the world go round. Donkey, make the world go round. Donkey, 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 make the world go Yep, that's Otis and Melvin. High on Cake is the album. Donkey is the song. We turned it into Duncan. Let me just play the Duncan jingle, Dan, and then you can comment.
not a bad little jingle. We did talk to some people that know a lot more about jingle writing than we do, and we got our ass handed to us. <laughs> I still kind of like it. I, I I don't know. I'm optimistic about it. I think we could do something with it if we want to. Yeah, I don't feel any differently about it than uh, the moment I had the idea. I had just gone to see my dad in the hospital. He was very sick. Um, he's no longer with us, but It was another one of those times when your brain is just kind of overloaded with tiredness or some kind of stress and your brain comes up with these things. I put in um, a rough mix of Donkey and I just started singing uh, Duncan Makes the World Go Round. And I'm like, whoa, that could be something. So everybody go into your Dunkin Donuts tomorrow when you get your morning coffee. Absolutely say Duncan Makes the World Go Round and help us out. Absolutely. Let's sell this thing. Let's make some money for a change. For a change. Dan, I'd like to talk to you about your many bands. We've talked a lot about work that we've done together, but we've hardly touched on the many, many bands that you've been in. You do a ton of work. I'm just going to list these bands, and we've talked about some of them today. Uh, You've been in the Redeemers, the Canheads, the Tim Wilkie Band, the Rick Z Band, Cruise Control, Otis and Melvin, Bad News, Psychedelic Oven Mitt, Starman, Mystical Majesty. What else we got on here? Zito 3. We've hit on some of this stuff. Let me ask you about a few of these bands and just give me 30 seconds on each one. How about the Redeemer? I know they're a Hudson Valley band. Well, I was in the studio with you and Paul Antonell gave me Chris Carson's number. He said, give this guy a call. He just wants to play some Beatles and Stone songs. And I had not been in a band for about seven years. I met with these guys. I thought they were great players. We started playing bars and clubs. And eventually we moved up to playing nothing but corporate events and weddings. And uh, we love to play this danceable rock with the Redeemers. Come hire us for your next party. Hey, didn't you play with the Redeemers for Annie Leibowitz, who lives here in Rhinebeck? Yeah, we played an acoustic set for uh, a wedding she was having on her property. Cool. And um, she was uh, extremely warm and great host. What a wonderful uh, person and what a wonderful uh, scenic property she has. You were also in a band called the Canheads. I was in that band with you. Of course, I know who they are. Why don't you tell the listener who they are? Well, Canhead is actually uh, an annoying, stupid looking patch of hair that gets flattened on your head after you've had headphones on for too long. Canhead. Uh, What was happening was I knew this man, uh, Sean McCreevy. He was in Santa Monica, California, and he was doing some charity work for the homeless. We all did Beach Boys covers and we sold a cassette and we raised some money for uh, homeless of Santa Monica. Um, I did a song called Let Him Run Wild. Uh, you helped me with the vocals. We had Sal Giorgiani on sax. We had uh, Carl Olwire on bass and guitar and me on um, piano, keyboards and, and drums. And we did this thing. We ended up coming out on CD in Japan, of all things. We, apparently, we're big in Japan. Wow. Psychedelic oven mitt. I got to know what that is because I'm not sure I actually know. Well, I I barely know myself. I was in the band for about two weeks to describe their music, sort of like a part sublime, you know, part heavy ska, part mighty, mighty Boston's, uh, that kind of project. But uh, it didn't work out. Great name. Yeah. Well, the whole idea uh, is that uh, what's the least psychedelic thing? And an oven mitt is not psychedelic at all. (laughs) I see your point. One of your more lucrative musical ventures 
I'm talking about mm -hmm. Starman, the David Bowie tribute band. Tribute bands are huge right now. You, they get big audiences. You've been playing with Starman for quite some time. You've played some big venues. You've done some stuff. Yes, we've played uh, Bergen Pack. We've played the Landis Theater. We've played the City Winery, both New York and uh, coming up on January 8th. We'll be playing the one in Pennsylvania. The tribute bands are an interesting thing because... I know that I played a gig with you at the bottom line in 1996. We just started our second album, which of course hasn't come out yet, but <laughs> we played on a bill called Who's On First? We were on because we had opened for national acts, such as the band, such as Blue Oyster Cult. And we got up and we did all of our original material, which was well received. I thought our original material was good. But that night I realized something because one of the other bands played into the mystic and that got by far the biggest applause out of any song that any band played that night and i thought ah, i think the game's over you can't compete with a, a song that somebody's known for 30 years you just can't do it therein lies the conundrum it's like why did people stop listening to new music people are not born knowing van morrison's catalog or or uh, led zeppelin's catalog or elton john's catalog at some point they had to say i haven't heard elton john before let me hear what he's like let me hear zeppelin let me hear rush let me hear acdc i, I want to hear this stuff and at some point though i think people stop listening to new music and that's an issue i've been playing with the uh, Starman for about five years now unfortunately bo is no longer with us so that makes us even more marketable well the heavyweight champion of tribute bands most definitely Beatles tribute bands like Beatlemania, for example. You are in one. You're in Mystical Majesty. How long have you been in that band? You guys have been around forever. I'm with them 15 years this year. Wow. We just got an award from the town of Orangeburg, New York, for having played there 15 years in a row. And no end in sight. You know, knock on wood, we're going to keep playing there. People seem to love it. We play to about a thousand people there. Everybody seems to love it. And uh, the Beatles are my favorite band. They've just become hot once again with uh, the Get Back series on Disney+. Plus. And it seems like this is uh, every couple of years, another thing comes out. The, the Beatles remasters, uh, box sets, a new uh, movie, a new documentary. We end up um, you know, reaping the benefits of some of that because of renewed interest in the band. Yeah, who doesn't love the Beatles? Didn't your Beatles band play with Pete Best or something like that at one point? What was that all about? Yes, we played the old cutting room. Um, there was no air conditioning and it was July 7th, Ringo's birthday. We opened for them, which I think is great. I mean, you know, Pete Best allowed a Beatles cover band to open for them. In appreciation, we let them use our equipment. Um, Pete played my drum set, which was incredible. Um, that uh, Pete Best band is, is really great. I mean, if you get a chance to see them, they capture that early 60s Cavern Club sound absolutely perfectly. It has an incredible edge to it. The energy is there. Um, I can't say enough good things about them. Dan, you've done a lot of incredible work. We're certainly not able to talk about it all in this show, especially all the stuff we've done together or the stuff you've done separately. You have a whole body of work. I appreciate you being here talking about it today. I'd like to uh, also thank you for, well, for encouraging me, for probably being my biggest supporter, longest supporter, for being, for a lack of a better word, 
the archivist of our music. I wouldn't have half the stuff that I have now if it weren't for you saving a cassette here and there or a television show that we were on or the countless hours of videotape that you have. Some of that stuff is played on the show today. We wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. So thanks for that. And also, I want to thank you for helping out with this very podcast. You have co-produced some of these podcasts. You've interviewed me on the show. You've helped get some of my favorite guests like Liberty DeVito and John Bermuda Schwartz from Weird Al's Band and Ronnie Zito. Thank you so much for all your help. Oh, you're quite welcome. You know, the money means nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. Thank God for that, because... Well, yeah, the the money is nothing. (laughs) Literally is nothing. Dan, uh, let's get out of here with a song that we're both on together. Maybe something from way back when. What do you think? Uh, Something back in the day. How about Let's Do Something Crazy? Ah, a song that we've played many, many times all over the map together. Yeah, we got Graham Maybe on this track. We got John Platania on this track. It's uh, a song that we continue to play to this day and we'll probably play again. Produced by Gary Burke. Well, here it is from our And Now the Weather album. We worked really hard on that one, as you remember. This is the Rick Z Band. Let's do something crazy. Dan D'Elia on drums. Telephone, I'm a calculated man, and I don't want to live with this heart of stone. So, honey, take my hand. Let's do something crazy. Let's do something right. Let's do something crazy tonight. Ooh, and I never had the notion to defy authority. That's my high priority Work all day and work all night And draw within the lines But I gotta say that I've seen the light So honey, close the blinds And let's do something crazy Let's do something right Let's do something crazy Tonight Well, I've always known what's right and wrong We've from strong, I've been away too long Watch my wagon drag along I never sang a good time song to you
crazy Let's do something right Let's do something crazy So there it is, folks. Dan, thank you again. This has been a lot of fun just hanging out and talking like we do every day. <laughs> Only we're doing this on the show. So thank you. You're quite welcome. It was great to be here. Today's episode of The Rick Z Show is brought to you by an album that Dan and I produced together. It's called High on Cake by Otis and Melvin. Pick it up right now. Just pick it up. I don't care if you pick it up and then you put it back down, but as long as you pick it up, we're happy. Go to otisandmelvin.com to get your copy or to Amazon, probably a few ways. You come right over to my house right now. I'll give you a copy. And you're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, produced and engineered every week by Josie Grant. Come back next week, and I promise we'll have another great Hudson Valley artist right here for you. We'll see you then.